Welcome on in to the Superintendent Radio Network and episode 19 of Beyond the Page, the podcast that goes a little deeper into some of the stories and columns in Golf Course Industry Magazine. I'm Matt Lowell, Managing Editor of the magazine, and I'm joined today by a pair of guests well worth listening to. Marissa Marr is new to the podcast, but not to the game of golf. She was a toddler when she first joined her parents at the course, then went on to a successful high school career and a four-year run at Stanford, where she finished among the top 120 golfers at the NCAA championship three times. She works in Silicon Valley now and is on the podcast because she is the, get this, 29-year-old green chair of the Olympic Club. The Olympic Club, of course, will host the U.S. Women's Open next month. We talk about her life and career, who inspired her to join both the Olympic Club and its Green Committee, and what the club is doing to prepare for its first women's major. Henry DeLozier is a familiar name and voice to regular listeners of Beyond the Page. Our game plan columnist, Henry, has filed four straight dispatches about staffing for success, from finding the right people, to building a strong culture, to showing gratitude, and beyond. If you're having trouble filling your crew, if you're wondering how to find the right people, if you're dreading telling the board or ownership you might not be able to finish the to-do list this season, Henry has some advice. This is a great episode of Beyond the Page. I love talking with Henry. I love talking with Marissa. And I think you're going to love listening to them. Henry DeLozier, Marissa Marr, after the break. So many headlines about the U.S. Women's Open, which is scheduled to tee off June 3rd at the Olympic Club in San Francisco, is about the volunteer program, thanks to more than half of the 55 to 60 volunteers being women turf pros, some of them as young as 18 or 19. The Olympic Club also has some powerful women members, including former LPGA Tour player and Golf Channel reporter Kay Cockrell, 2012 Curtis Cup captain Dr. Pat Cornett, and my first guest on this episode of Beyond the Page, Marissa Marr, a former Stanford golfer and the club's current green chair. Marissa, welcome to the podcast. How are you? Thank you. I'm, I'm excited to be here. Um, and yeah, let's dive in. So you're the first green chair to appear on any of our podcasts, as far as I know. Almost all of our guests are superintendents and other turf pros. You're also among the youngest. You're not even 30 yet. You just turned 29 earlier this year. You attended Stanford. Just a quick background for folks listening. You attended Stanford. You finished among the top 118 golfers at the NCAA championships three out of your four years. Injured one year. High of 76. Pretty good. You golfed at St. <laughs> Francis Catholic High School, all-girls school in Sacramento. What was your introduction to the game? I have to imagine you were already golfing before you got to St. Francis. Right, right. No, it's, um, you know, I was really lucky. Both my parents played golf. Um, and so my dad, he picked it up in medical school. He taught my mom after they got married. And, you know, essentially, they didn't want to get a babysitter. So uh, they brought me out to the course with them. And I started swinging a club probably around three. Obviously, when they brought me out, I, I kind of started running in the bunkers and trying to drive the golf cart. And then eventually started to swing more consistently. Um, and so yeah, I was super lucky. And, and I ended up growing up on a, a course down in Davis called El Macero Country Club on the first hole there. So um, yeah, spent my summers just 
riding my bike out to the course and practicing all day long. But I grew up playing every sport you can imagine. So it wasn't until high school where I, I kind of started to focus more on golf. And this was lower down in my notes, but a very good athletic history. You were first team all league in high school <laughs> in basketball, not just golf. First team all league in basketball, but great <clears throat> athletic genes. Your mom, in addition to being a golfer and your dad was a golfer, your mom was on the 1984 Canadian Gymnastics Olympic team. Amazing. <laughs> yes. I, you know, I was, I was telling you earlier, I, my accomplishments sound, you know, decent on paper until people find out like what my mom has done. And then I totally sound like garbage compared to her. <laughs> <laughs> You're too harsh on yourself. No, no she's pretty awesome. I, I'll be the first to, to say that. So running around the course really from age three on, like you said, running in the bunkers when you were a tiny kid, what, what role, how did golf play a part in your life when you were a little kid? And then obviously into your you know, 10, 11, 12 on in before uh, high school. Yeah, gosh. I mean, you know, especially in those early years, it was just a, a fun activity to do with my parents. Um, and then like, once I started to get into like that nine, 10 age range, there were there was a group of boys in my neighborhood that were all kind of around my age and they loved playing golf too. So I just wanted to like hang out with them. <laughs> and so, you know, that's kind of what, um, you know, brought me to the golf course most days was just to like hang out with friends. And then, you know, as a byproduct, I, I ended up getting um, a lot better just because I was playing so often. And then, but, you know, like you mentioned, I played basketball and I will, I will fullheartedly admit that that was my first love out of all the sports that I played basketball was it. I wanted to, you know, I wanted to play in college. I wanted to play in the WNBA. Ended up only being 5'4". Um, so <laughs> that was a hindrance. And then also the fact that I tore both my ACLs. Oh. Um, I think it was, it was a way for the universe to tell me, okay, stop being a dumb 16-year-old. You're meant to play golf. <laughs> so, so yeah, that's what, that's what brought me to college. It worked out. You golfed all four years at Stanford uh, and obviously an incredible program there, but mm -hmm you being a very good basketball player as well, any, any college interest there before you ripped up both ACLs? Yeah. I mean, it was nothing compared to, you know, my recruiting for golf, obviously it was, you know, more D2, D3, but, but great schools. Um, and so, you know, that's kind of what was, was important for me is getting a great education, you know, regardless of whether I played D1 or D3 uh, in basketball, but um, you know, it, it, it definitely ended up working out the way it was supposed to work out. Your four years at Stanford, like I said earlier, you were injured one year, but a very, very mm -hmm. strong player. What was the transition like from a very good all-girls high school in Sacramento? And I think you won mm -hmm. three NorCal team titles. Uh, so a great four. program. All four. I'm sorry. All four. Yeah. <laughs> uh, to, to a really storied program. What was the transition like from high school golf to very high-level college golf? Yeah. I mean, I think my, my freshman year was... Um, very similar to I'd say most golfers I mean some come in and they just like absolutely dominate you know kind of the the top top juniors um but you know it was freshman year you're just trying to get used to the academic life at Stanford you're trying to get used to the practice schedule and trying to balance like new social friends and so the first year was like very tiring <laughs> but then after that after you get settled I was so lucky I had four great teams um that I got to play with and you know um, different players during my four, four years at Stanford. So um, to see the program evolve, uh, especially under Coach Walker, who she came in and, and did an amazing job, 
not only recruiting, but really creating a strong team culture there. And, you know, I just, I got to witness the program really uh, skyrocket during my, my four years there and then continue to just get even better. Like I was, I was saying the other day, I went to watch the Pac-12s that Stanford is hosting and this team has gotten so good that I would be like fighting for like the water girl spot. Like (laughs) that's how good they've gotten. And so I was really lucky to kind of watch that transition happen while I was there. Well, maybe you would be the water girl now at 29. I think you were joking on Twitter earlier this year. Your peak, your swing peaked at like age 19, 20, 21. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, that, that, was, that was like 1997 when I was like five. That's okay. when my swing peaked, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You kept golfing after Stanford as well. You were in the mid-am, I think three straight years, and you medaled one year. That's right. Yeah, my first year, I was, you know, I was really, really lucky. I so I should, I should probably back up and say, you know, like I, I probably took a six month break after I graduated from college thinking I wouldn't want to pick up a club for like two years. And then, you know, one of uh, my teammates was like, Hey, let's just, let's do the four ball qualifier. It's a brand new USJ tournament. What the heck? Let's just go do the club. We ended up qualifying for the inaugural, which was at Bandon. Mm-hmm. And we just had such a great, great experience there that I caught the golf bug again. And so fully, you know, committed to, to playing in amateur events uh, still. And so when I turned 25, uh, I was very, very thankful because I was getting my butt kicked by like 14 year olds at the AM qualifier. So, (laughs) you know, when I turned 25, that was like my like rejuvenation. And so uh, I I qualified my my first year and the championship was held at Champions Golf Club where they hosted the uh, last year's US Women's Open. And I was, I was lucky enough to play really well that week. I medaled and finished in the semifinals um, of match play. And yeah, and so have continued to try to keep up my game. And, and being a member at Olympic Club has been a huge part of, of my ability to, you know, continue to play at a reasonably high level, um, even though I don't have as much time to practice these days. But just, you know, getting to play on those facilities and play on those courses, you know, on weekends, it's, it, it, it doesn't hurt the game, for sure. <laughs> and Olympic Club was the spark the whole spark to have you on the podcast. There's a story in the May issue about the job that Troy Flanagan is doing there and obviously having the U.S. Women's Open there next month. You joined very, very young and you have a tech background out of Stanford. You worked at Yahoo, you worked at Square. I imagine you've done pretty well, which is why you remember already. What was the process in joining Olympic Club and and why did you focus on Olympic Club really as, as your home club? So, you know, I, thank you for, yeah, the, the background, it was, um, that came actually after I, I joined, really, it was, okay. uh, I, it was a big, a big driver of me joining was who you mentioned earlier in, um, in the podcast, it was Dr. Pat Cornett, who, going back to the four bowl qualifier in, in 2014, we had gotten paired with her. And uh, she is, has been a long time, obviously a long time supporter of Stanford. She's in Stanford's Hall of Fame for golf unbelievable supporter of women's golf and they had just uh opened up a new membership which was essentially an athletic membership you know olympic club has a a dozen other sports and they all have athletic members who are former collegiate athletes who didn't turn professional but want to continue to compete and so they get an accelerated membership through that and so i was lucky to you know she she basically was like you gotta apply it's like you don't have to convince me at all i'm i'm in (laughs) Um, and so we went through that process, met a bunch of, of awesome people at Olympic Club, and you know we we played out there a couple times, and 
and we had played it in college and, and whatnot, but, you know, kind of seeing it with fresh eyes, I was like, oh my gosh, I need, I need to, this is, if I want to continue to compete at a high level, I need a facility like this. And I've just been so blessed to be a part of, of that club because it's just been, I mean, like I said, the facilities are awesome. The courses are top notch. So um, yeah, so I, I've, I've been there since 20, 2015. So six years, you became very active at the course early on. You're currently the green chair, which we'll get to in a minute. Before that, you were the secretary. And I have a, a quote from uh, <laughs> Troy here in, in a few minutes. But what sparked your interest in becoming green chair? So, again, I, I feel like everything down at, at Olympic Club in terms of my involvement, almost all of it stems from Pat Cornett. She she was joining the board, the, the big board of the club, and she was leaving her spot open for on the green committee. And I, I hadn't really thought about committee work. Um, I, I'd been in the club for, I think it was three years at that point. And so, you know, I was looking to get more involved. I, I kind of understood the dynamics of the club and it was, you know, got to know a lot of, of great people. So I felt like I kind of knew the inner workings a little bit. And she was basically like, I have a vacant spot on the, on the green committee. We need to get like better golfers who have, you know, a lot of, a lot of elite playing experience just to like understand how to assess a championship facility. Um, and I was like, whatever you tell me, Pat, I will do. <laughs> and so, um, yeah, so I applied and, and I got granted a four-year commitment on the green committee. And, you know, the first two years while I was there, I got to work under a great green chair, Nuncio Alioto who, you know, I, so I got to kind of observe the way that he ran, ran our meetings. And I think we were uh, super productive in the first two years. And then especially with the women's championship coming up, um, you know, I like, a, you know, I have so many close friends that are going to be actually playing in the tournament. Not only that, but given that it's the first one, first women's open that Olympic club is, is hosting. I think there's so many people who are bought into making this like the best women's open that they've ever had. And so from that aspect, I was like, you know, I, I got to do my part. And I think my part, if, if possible, to get the green chair position, I think that that would be a great way for me to contribute to this, um, to this championship. And so, and, and also working with Troy, it's just been such a pleasure to work with him. He is, he makes my job so easy. I lean on him for, you know, <laughs> advice on, um, I, I, I'm constantly asking him questions about how grass grows and, you know, and what <laughs> conditions, what conditions are ideal, what we need to change about things, what he would, um, in his ideal world, how we would run things. And so he's been a great mentor and just friend overall in this whole experience. Cause it's been, it's been a lot of work for, for both of us, especially him, but you know, for me, and, um, it's just been a lot a big learning curve. So for him to take the time to actually, uh, you know, explain things to me, it's been huge. And so, yeah, so that, that's kind of what brought me to this, this spot. And, you know, it, it definitely wouldn't have happened with, without the, uh, the support of people like Troy. I know that, you know, especially, I think, you know, you mentioned my age. I, I wouldn't have imagined that I, I could have gone, you know, I was hopeful, but I wasn't sure because there's a lot of, of experienced members on the green committee, but luckily with support of people like Troy and a, a few of the board members, um, you know, and, and kind of, how they had observed what I contributed to the, the committee so far. Um, that's, that's the main reason why I got the chair position. And I don't know if you're the youngest green chair in the country, but Troy <laughs> did mention that in his almost 25 years uh, working with green chairs, he's never had one in their 20s or 30s 
or 40s as he remembers. So you being 29, <laughs> you set a very, very high or maybe a very low bar comparatively, uh, low age-wise. Yeah, no, it's I, it's it's funny. When you look at the uh, the lineup of, of historical green chairs, it's pretty easy to pick me out in the, the photo lineup. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it's, I mean, we just have had such a great um, green program and we, we have so many, so many awesome members at our club that um, it, you know, getting this position is just, I, I wouldn't say necessarily just luck, but it's, it's right timing. It's right, right place, right time. You mentioned one of the things you've talked with Troy about is, so how do you progress? What do you do? What did you know about agronomy? You've been on courses all your life, but what did you know about agronomy yep. before uh, becoming green chair? You know, admittedly, very little. I knew the times of year that we punched the greens <laughs> and aerated. <laughs> um, but, you know, outside of that, all the other agronomic practices, like, brand new to me when I first joined. I mean, um, I think, you know, hopefully that has served as one of my strengths is being self-aware of what I know and what I don't know. Um, you know, I, I, I kind of, you run across a lot of people who are great amateur players or, you know, and whatnot, and they think that they know everything about how to, you know, create a championship setup. And so I really wanted to focus on um, fully admitting the, you know, what I, what I had no idea about, but I wanted to learn. And then from there, as I've gone to build my knowledge, I've, you know, tried to interject some opinions, but for the most part, I, you know, I didn't go to school for this. And so I rely on the experts, Troy, his team, on, on how, what, you know, the best way that they think we should move forward on any given situation. And then, you know, I'll, I'll add my opinion when needed. That's a great jumping off point <clears throat> for just the relationship between a green chair and a superintendent or a, a greens director. When I, when I talked to Troy, and this was one of the things that unfortunately got left on the cutting room floor, <clears throat> I had 10,000 words of notes and it was about a 1500 word story. She really observes She's not one to talk over you to be the loudest one. She listens. And when she talks, she's typically right on. He also went on to say that when you were secretary, uh, you would send in your minutes within about a half an hour of meetings when previous secretaries would take five days and they would be pestering them and they'd be full of grammatical errors and high praise. He, he really, really likes working <laughs> with you. But he's kind of outlined what he wants from a green chair. And you've alluded to a lot of that. What does a green chair want from a superintendent, do you think? Yeah, I mean, so, you know, as I, I um, even before I became chair, I, I tried to decipher what I thought the ideal working relationship was between the Green Committee and what their job should be, and, you know, the turf maintenance crew and what their jobs are. And, you know, I, I kind of distilled it down to Green Committee is there, obviously, to inform the maintenance um our maintenance staff of like, you know, the conditions that we would like, but then also it's, it's an open dialogue. Like, you know, just because we want the green, like everyone wants the greens to roll at 12s to 13s every right. single day. Right. <laughs> you know, <laughs> regardless of what's going on, you know, weather wise, time of year wise, no, everyone wants them at 12 or 13. They should be rolling absolutely pure 365 days of the year. Um, I, you know, I found that our biggest job is to understand what we're doing to the course and, you know, why and when, and, you know, as these types of comments or questions come up through the membership, we're there to like serve as the buffer between 
the green staff and, or the turf staff and the membership. I mean, we have 10,000 members at Olympic club, like everyone and their mother has an opinion of the course <laughs> conditions. And so to burden that, you know, to have Troy carry that burden is like not productive at all. And so, you know, obviously he still gets a number of, of emails and whatnot, but I think our job is to really kind of um, be the filter on, on that. And so that, that's what I've, I've kind of found our working dynamic is like, I want him to be best set up to do his job um, the best that he absolutely can without having to be, you know, hindered by opinions that, of people that, you know, aren't, aren't agronomists right. <laughs> or, you know, aren't, aren't necessarily turf professionals. Um, but, you know, at the same time also, you know, provide any sort of support that he needs from our end, um, whether it be vouching for additional budget or, you know, whatever, whatever else it is. So that, that's what I've kind of found our, our dynamic has been. You mentioned there are something like 10 or 11,000 <clears> members <throat> at the Olympic club and it's a full athletic <clears throat> club. So not all of the members are full golfing members, but that's right. There's thousands of golfing members. How do you yeah. handle the complaints? I'm sure there are at <laughs> least a few. Not everybody's happy all the time. No, there's, yeah, there's, there's a number. I mean, you know, it's, I, it's, there's only a handful that I've, I've kind of deemed unreasonable or, you know, kind of totally off the rocker. For the most part, people are just asking about, you know, very standard things of like, you know, why are we watering or why are, why are the, you know, <laughs> greens not rolling at 12s or whatnot. Um, and so, you know, I, I, I never treat it as like they're insulting like our committee or, you know, Troy's team. I always treat it as like, they're just asking a question, even if they might be, you know, <laughs> insulting. Um, but, you know, so that's, that's kind of been um, the way I've handled it. It's just, you know, and if I don't know the question or I don't know the answer to the question, I'll, I'll, the first person I, I call is Troy just to say like, okay, what is the right answer I should give here? Um, because I, I don't want to, you know, totally misrepresent how grass has grown <laughs> and, you know, why things are done the way that they are, you know, like obviously I've, I've acquired a good amount of knowledge from, through Troy. And so for the most part, I can just kind of field the questions myself, but um, you know, especially for those trickier ones, I, I go to Troy first. And most of our audience, turf pros, superintendents, agronomy directors, et cetera. What other advice would you share with them about working with green chairs on a regular basis? Just things to keep in mind. Yeah, I think, you know, one thing, especially on this year, I don't know if it's, if it's unique to this year, but I'm sure that Troy, you know, given his many years in the industry and, and doing this with many, many green chairs, he's done really well is I think just lean on your, your green chair or your green chair when, there are kind of things outside of your, your scope of your job. Like, you know, like I said, fielding questions for membership, like that should definitely be green chair. I'd say lean on your green chair as much as you can for things that really aren't in your, your day job description, because it just takes so much time away from you being able to do your job to the fullest. And, you know, that's what the green chair is there for. So I think Troy's done an awesome job of that, especially with the women's open coming up. He and his, his staff are just, busy from sun up to sun, even past sundown. So, you know, as much as I can take off of his plate, I'm more than happy to do it. And I, I think that most green chairs would feel the same. I know he's into <clears throat> his seven days a week stretch here leading up to the open, which again, <laughs> tees off Thursday, June 3rd. Yep. 
What else in the next few weeks are you looking forward to in U.S. Women's Open prep or the event itself? You've been out there a lot. You've been playing a lot of good rounds. And I saw a round not too long ago that you played with Kay Cockrell uh, mm -hmm. and Troy. And was it Jay Blasey was your fourth? Yeah, yeah, Jay Blasey was out there. We were, we were actually just walking the course and just observing okay. the conditions that day. But, um, yeah, I've been, I've been out there a lot. I think I've, this is the most time I've spent on a golf course since probably college. <laughs> so, um, but it's, it's all fun for me. So um, I'd say what I'm most looking forward to, it's, it, I mean, things are starting to feel more and more real every single day. You know, we just had media day on Monday. And so, you know, all the media folks were in town. The USJ was, uh, you know, all in town. You know, banners are starting to go up around the club. Um, we're starting to really th see things take shape. And more and more uh, LPGA pros are coming out for their practice rounds. So that's, that's I think, in the next couple of weeks, that'll be the most exciting is kind of seeing more professionals come out and a lot of them see the course for the first time and kind of hear their thoughts on, on how it plays, how they play it, um, and any other, uh, you know, tidbits that they, they want to share with us. And then, you know, I feel like it's June 3rd is going to come up so quickly. And so... I know Troy and his, his team are, are going to be extremely busy in the month of May. And so offering as much support as I, I actually can, because, you know, so much, so much of it is on, on their side. Cause I, you know, I, I, I don't know anything about um, how to flush a green properly. <laughs> so, um, you know, I, I mean, I'm happy to stand out there with a the hose, but I don't know if Troy wants me out there. And so, yeah, no, I think that's going to be the most exciting part is kind of continue to see things take shape, see more and more tour pros come out and, um, and play the course. You mentioned a while back, you actually have quite a few friends who will be playing in the field of 156. Have any of them, and you don't have to name names, but have any of them called up and said, Marissa, what do I need to look out for? How's, how's the course playing? What do I need to know? Yeah, I mean, there've been, you know, nothing specifically like that, but, you know, a, a few have reached out to play practice rounds and I've, you know, I've, I've left an open invitation for anyone to, you know, reach out if they, if they just want to play anytime. And so I think that that's kind of the biggest thing about Olympic club is like, it's one of those, those particularly the late course. It's one of those courses that you just need to play uh, a, a number of times to really get uh, the nuances of it. And so, I mean, that's like the biggest advice I can get is like, get as many practice rounds as you possibly can. It's, it's probably going to be, more undulated than most uh, most other courses that they'll see on tour this year. It's going to be different climate uh, in in June in San Francisco, mm -hmm. and so you know as much as if you can see the course as much as you can, I think you'll be fine. And when your term is up here <clears throat> in a couple of years, it's a relatively short stint. I think about two years as green chair. Mm -hmm. What's next? I mean, you're going to be barely 30. You're going to have already done this. <laughs> Are you going to be running the green section? Are you going to be running the LPGA, the PGA? <laughs> Troy's prediction is given your, given your finance and tech background, again, you've worked for Yahoo, you've worked for Square mm -hmm. and Financial Spaces, that you'll mm -hmm. just be running one of the Silicon Valley companies, whether it's a current one or one that's still to be born. <laughs> well, you know, I, I still, I, it's so funny. I still feel like I'm such a, a novice, even though I've, I've, you know, accumulated good, a decent amount of experience so far, but you know, who knows? I, I mean, I, I, I want to continue my involvement at Olympic club. I just, you know, I'm just such a big proponent of, of the club and growing the game as much as we can and, you know, getting more and more championships to our club. Uh, Cause I think it's, it's just one of those venues that is, is born to, to hold championships. So, mm -hmm. you know, whatever I can do there, 
and then who knows? Uh, we'll see. I, I still have my day job. <laughs> so I gotta, I gotta focus on that probably after, after this year. Um, it's kind of not gone on the back burner, but it's definitely uh, taken a big balancing act to do both uh, this year. So, you know, <laughs> it's, it's been fun though. All, like I said, all fun for me. And obviously again, the U.S. Women's Open, June 3rd to 6th. Anything else you want to plug or promote or mention or anything we haven't talked about, Marissa? No, I think, we, I mean, we covered it pretty much, pretty much all of it. I'm just so excited to see what these pros are going to do um, on the late course. I think, you know, having hosted five U.S. Open, mm -hmm. men's U.S. Opens, hopefully that experience will, will feed into our ability to kind of create a top-notch experience for the ladies that they deserve and you know, and, and hopefully walk away saying that this is the best women's open they've played in. But, you know, we still have, have a ways to go until, until the last, uh, the last putt. So we'll see. And over the next 12 years, this is really just the start. There's the women's open again this year coming up mm -hmm. in the next 12 years. There's a Ryder cup, there's a mm -hmm. PJ championship, there's a USAM mm -hmm. and yep. starting very soon. Uh, they, I know you probably know more about it than most people, the Gil Hans, master plan for the for the whole facility all 45 holes just a mm -hmm. lot going on <laughs> there is a lot going on and I, I guess that's that's another thing that we didn't really touch on is I'm so excited that, that Gil is is involved with our club like I mean you know obviously there are so many amazing amazing architects today but Gil's work in particular I've just been a huge fan of and he's just a pleasure to work with he is one of the most humble people I think I've ever met in my entire life for as much success as he's amassed. You know, he's just a totally normal guy who loves talking about golf courses. And I just, you know, for me, again, it's like, I know what I know and what I don't know. And golf course architecture, I know how to like assess a hole that's in front of me, but I don't know how to draw a hole. <laughs> you know, if you gave me a blank piece of paper, I'd probably give you a pretty crappy hole. But, you know, getting to see him do, you know, assess our property and, and kind of come up with his ideas and also, you know, do the balancing act of, you know, holding our history um, very much, you know, at a high, high regard, but also uh, meshing that with the modern game is, is super fun to just observe him do, him and his team do. And so I'm, I'm so excited for, for the next decade uh, ahead for Olympic club. I think it's going to be, it's going to be very, very busy, but like, like you said, we have, you know, four major championships coming or uh, three after the women's open. Um, but I, uh, you know, hopefully we'll have a few more as well, as well as, you know, kind of this, uh, our, our master plan that's in the works. And so it, it's exciting all around and just happy to be, just happy to be a member in general. We out here are thrilled to watch the tournament on television in again, just a few <laughs> weeks. Looking forward to it. It should be a lot of fun. Awesome. Awesome. Marissa Marr is the green chair at the Olympic Club, host of the U.S. Women's Open June 3rd to 6th. Marissa, thanks so much. Thanks so much, Matt. My next guest on Beyond the Page is a familiar name to regular listeners, Henry Delosier. Our game plan columnist is back to discuss what was originally a three-part series about staffing for success, but it is still running strong. There's a fourth installment in our May issue you're going to want to read. 
Henry, welcome back to the podcast. How are you? Thank you, Matt. I'm very well. Hope everyone else is. It has been a beautiful week here, and I think spring finally has sprung. We've gone from 80 to 30 to 70 to 30, and today is finally okay. You're in Phoenix, though, where every day is about 102. Whenever uh, I hear of such fluctuations, I always empathize with golf course superintendents because they're the ones that have to hold it all together through that. This is true. Before we dive into some of the specifics of your last four columns, which, again, I do not advocate ripping pages out of magazines. I love saving magazines. I shelve all my magazines at home. But if you only save a few pages, rip out Henry's column, put them on your, put them on your tack board. Uh, what you. prompted you to write the Staffing for Success series? Uh, that's, that's the whole ballgame right now. Um, finding, finding the right people is so tough for golf course superintendents that it's, it's job one in most management positions these days. Um, the pandemic has caused a lot of people to leave the workforce. Uh, a lot of working women uh, who've not been able to have alternatives and have needed to take care of, of their families uh, have left the workforce and that's like a real shortage. And then the other factor that kicks into play is of course that um, the expectations for golf course superintendents just keep escalating. And no, no one is telling a superintendent, you know, good enough is fine. Don't, don't worry if it's not all that good. Uh, just, just do it cheaply. Uh, quite to the contrary, superintendents are being held to higher and higher standards. Now, granted, uh, everyone's trying to figure out ways to cut costs, but they're not trying to cut the workload of the superintendent or the expectations under which he or she is working. Golf course maintenance, golf course conditions, much like inflation, very rarely goes down. It only goes up. <laughs> Over right. the last few months, especially now that we're more than a year from the start of the pandemic, you mentioned, obviously, unemployment was a lot higher last spring than it is now, but it's still tough to find people. You talk with a lot of folks at a lot of courses, a lot of clubs, even outside of maintenance. Has the tide shifted a little bit? Is it getting a little easier than it was last spring to get more folks back on, whether it's crew members or, or higher level staff? I'm, I'm not sure that it has, Matt. I think, uh, I think superintendents and facilities managers in general are having to cast a wider net, and, and that has put additional pressure on, um, on conditions. Um, I think there may be some opportunity and we may talk about a couple of those. Uh, and at the same time, I, I think the labor supply is still tough, especially for positions like uh, golf course care and upkeep. So if we go through these columns one by one, and again, we normally talk about one column rather than four. So we're only going to be going so deep into these uh, okay. as if we were compared to where if we were talking about all uh, one at a time. Your first column, which was in the February issue, really kicked things off well. And you wrote, in the heat of crisis, owners and managers learned who on their teams could take on more responsibility, who had leadership potential, and who had reached their ceilings. You also wrote, the war for talent, and this ties into what you just said, the war for talent will continue to escalate. It's not getting any easier. Top performers will be in ever greater demand because as businesses reshape themselves into leaner, more efficient operations, those top performers are the best value money can buy. Labor is important uh, in this industry. Last year, for our state of the industry, 
COVID-19 precautions and workarounds ranked number two on projected biggest challenges of 2021. Labor by 15% was number one. It, it's always number one. How does the state of labor, and, and you mentioned that it's, just, it's not getting any easier, but how does the state today compare to any previous higher low points over the last 40, 50 years, basically your time uh, in the industry? Uh, and, and, and by the way, I haven't been in the business for 40 or 50 years, so I just want to... Well, you know. <laughs> I, 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 was, I, was, I was dating on, not 50, but I was dating on when you were a, a top golfer at Oklahoma State, and I believe that was the late 70s, or was that the early 80s? It was in the 70s, you bet. Okay. Thank okay. You, thanks for doing your homework. The big, <laughs> change, the big change is that top performers have changed. Uh, they're more in demand, um, and, and, and furthermore, the top performers among golf course superintendents... Um, and, and the crews on which you're calling ha have, have changed. The other is the supply of ambitious young people coming into the field. Um, you know, the, our turf schools are not graduating nearly as many students as we were a number of years ago. Uh, so the, the go-to resource for assistance and, and interns and externs has, has slowed, and that's made it tougher for most golf course superintendents to find the kind of people that they want. Um, for me, uh, there's, there's a really important tactical approach that most superintendents need to take, and that is the, the need, first of all, to be much more intentional about hiring. You know, we, we get to springtime, so many of the courses across the northern tier of the, of the U.S. and in, in you know, the south of Canada are starting to open up, and the number one job is, I got to get my crew in here. I got to hire some people. And ads are placed um, and the superintendent maybe has not taken enough time to think about what exactly is it I'm needing? What do I, what am I looking for? You know, and, and what was that famous saying when you have no destination, one road is as good as the next. Um, so for me, the advice I encourage people to take is uh, start with your criteria. Um, establish what is it that I'm looking for? You know, I'm not looking for ball players. I'm looking for position players. I'm looking for role players. I'm looking for people who can fit into my team and lift it up, make it better. And so for me, the first step is for a golf course superintendent is to be intentional and define clearly what is it I'm looking for? What skills do I need? What attitude do I want? And sometimes the starting point for that is to go to the negative side of that and say, what skills do I not need? What attitudes will I not tolerate? And let's, let's start thinking in terms of crossing off the things that are just non-starters. And that helps a superintendent to move over to the idea of what is it that I really want and need. But that's a, that's a key. Before you even send out your first ad, before you even start soliciting new involvement, you've got to be thinking in terms of, of how you're going to go about filling the positions that you, you want and need. The other thing that I encourage superintendents to do is to expand their thinking about who the possible workers may be. You know, for, for so long, uh, we have relied upon people of, um, of Hispanic backgrounds because we maybe have a crew chief who is fluent in Spanish or because that's the, the ready source of labor. But as that labor source starts to change, we need to be changing with it. I remember the first time I was working at a club where the superintendent hired a, a, a female equipment operator. 
And, you know, everybody was concerned. Does she even know how to drive this thing? Is she going to run it into a tree? Is she going to run it off into the creek? And it's never, it's never wise to speak in generalizations. But I think most of us have found uh, that, that women are effective equipment operators, that they take good care of equipment, sometimes better care of equipment than the, the, the equipment they're operating than others. So um, that's, a, that's a starting point. A lot, of, a lot of women would be attracted to jobs working on the golf course. I mean, how could you not? You, know, you get to work outdoors, you get to start your day early, finish up, still have time to maybe pick up children from school or the other things that, that are demands in your life. The other source of labor that, uh, that I think is, is an important source to consider is um, uh, folks that are people of color, people who would be considered uh, minorities. Uh, th those are sources that we have not really tapped into in the golf business, and it's time to do so. Uh, unemployment among young black males, um, extremely high, you know, almost double uh, unemployment levels for others. And of course, um, there's a certain amount of cultural connection that a golf course superintendent has to make, especially if that superintendent is a, a middle-aged white guy. But the fact of the matter is there's, there's another source of great workers who are just looking for the opportunity to find a career, find a, find a job that becomes something more than just uh, meet the paycheck. And, and then the last source of labor that I encourage everyone to be thinking about that sometimes gets overlooked, 2.7 million people are coming home from Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, military veterans uh, are disciplined as a general statement. They understand that you got to wake up in the morning and go to work. They understand that they need to do what they were instructed to do. They have enough backbone to offer constructive uh, solutions when called upon. So uh, that, that's a tremendous source of labor for, for golf courses. I believe that I can walk into a golf course maintenance building and look around the compound, look around the building and tell you if your uh, mechanic or any of the key leaders in your team uh, have military backgrounds because everything's in the right place. Everything where is, is put where it was supposed to be. And that order and discipline is something that really helps to create a, a positive work environment for everyone else on the team. So as, as I'm building my criteria for what I'm looking for, I think I'm looking into those three categories of poss possible employees for my crew where I'm otherwise having a hard time finding people. I feel like, and I've only been covering the industry now for a little bit more than two years. You've been in for decades and decades, but I feel like, as long as I've been covering it, folks have been talking about the labor possibilities of bringing in more women, of bringing in more minorities, of bringing in more military veterans. Now, you consult with a lot of clubs. Is this something that you've actually seen clubs start to do, or is it more just of a, this is a best practice for 2021, 2022 it's, and beyond? It's something I've seen growing. And I think, I think coming out of this coronavirus pandemic, we're going to see a lot more workers coming from the categories that I just described than we've ever seen in the golf business before. In, in the golf business before, we kind of fished in the same fishing hole everyone else was. And if, if we haven't learned anything else from this pandemic, it's you have to think differently. You have to be more expansive in your thinking to give yourself more opportunity. 
Is there anything that superintendents, directors of agronomy, folks in charge of hiring, whether it's the HR department, is there anything that they should be doing differently in terms of recruiting these folks? Should they be going in, in talks with maybe the, the local military recruiters or, or just going with different routes? Um, I was going to say casting a wider net. Mm -hmm. uh, certainly going to the recruiters or, or, or the, and the outplacement services, mm -hmm. career services for, the, for military folks. You know, a great source of workers in most communities, scouts, girl and boy scouts can be nurtured along. Golf course superintendents can create, a, create programs for the local scouting troops and invite them to come out and, and make it clear to them, I have a fantastic job. I have the best job in town. Um, I get to work outdoors. I'm essentially my own boss. I get to do a lot of things. Um, come out to the golf course, earn some badges on agronomics, on tree care and upkeep, earn badges on bird watching. There are so many things that a child can learn at the golf course. And, and I think that that's something that scouting is a great platform for that. And they're looking for resources that help to expand the relevance of the programs for the children. And then the other resource that I've seen that is a good one is uh, boys and girls clubs, you know, where, where you're, you have adults who are helping kids and an, an adult sometimes who's trying to be a mentor is advantaged if, if they can take a child to the golf course and say, you know, you could get a job here. This would be a really great place to work. Um, this is a great profession. And, and that, that's also a, a source of new labor. Now, if, if you're talking to children, you know, it's going to take a few years before they grow into the job, but it certainly is the right thing to do. I, I'm proud to tell you, first job I ever had in golf was grubbing out sand traps working for the golf course superintendent. And I was so eager. I was 12 years old, and I was so eager to prove that I could do the job. It was hot. I was sweating like a son of a gun. It seemed like the d deeper I dug, the more, I, more roots I found of that darn Bermuda grass. But it was a great learning experience. And what was the best part of the whole thing was the superintendent treated me kindly and at the same time did not cut me any slack. You know, you want to work with these men, you've got to keep up. We're not going to hold your hand. I'm not your mama. And that was a great lesson for me to learn as a, as a child. And so uh, I think there are a lot of places where superintendents can make an even greater impact in our society than they may realize. Do you remember how much you were paid out of the gate at 12 years old? Was it, was it hourly or was it daily rate? It was hourly and I got paid 75 cents an hour. And I thought that was all the money in the world. That's pretty good at 12. Yeah, I was, I was rolling in dough, man. <laughs> if we shift back a couple minutes ago, you said a lot of courses, especially in the northern parts of the U.S., the southern parts of Canada, starting to ramp up. It's early May. And even now in the pandemic, we've been talking about labor here for the last 15, 20 minutes. How do you structure your organization? And obviously trying to bring in more women, bring in more minorities, bring in more uh, military folks, maybe go to the local uh, chapters of the Boys and Girls Clubs or the Scouts, lots of lots of avenues. But how do you staff your organization when your headcount is down 20 or 30 percent and you may not have a chance to, to bring it back up to 100 percent before the start of the season? Um, there, uh, you know, staffing, staffing has become more amorphous than it ever was when we were coming up. Uh, you know, sometimes you have staff who are hourly wage, like my little job that I had. Sometimes you have uh, people who are on a fixed wage, a salary. 
Um, you also have more and more people who are wanting to work on a more flexible schedule, which gives the superintendent the opportunity to create more flexible employer-employee relationships. And, and that can also start to bleed into contract. I'm hiring you to thin out this area over here to the left of the 14th fairway. It's about three and a half acres. I'm looking for you to do these things. Uh, I'll provide you the tools. And when you're done, I'm going to pay you X amount of dollars. That's it. That's the entire job. If I have more work for you tomorrow, that will depend upon what kind of job you've done today. And so that, that keeps everyone on the top of their game. And it also makes it easier for that would-be employee to have, a, if you will, a tryout. Um, it, because employees now are much more empowered. They understand. It's a, right now, it's the employee's game. And the, high, the employer is, is trying, to, trying to play in that game. So giving employees a sense that they have a certain amount of control over the situation is a good thing to give up, especially if you get great work from them in exchange. I don't know how many superintendents I talked with over the last year who were reduced to only a handful of folks, or in some cases, it was just them for a while. Obviously, those numbers have ramped up a little bit, but again, without being at 100%, how should turf pros communicate? to their board, especially the board, maybe the green committee, that they just aren't able to do certain things right now. And they might not be able to do certain things in 2021. Not, not to be cute, but the answer to your question is how should superintendents communicate up the organization constantly? Hmm. For the most part, golf course superintendents are not effective communicators. They, they can certainly tell you what they think. They certainly know what they think. And at the same time, they communicate only when they must. And in this day and time, a golf course superintendent has to communicate constantly. You should be constantly pushing information up throughout the organization. And there are several key points that, that I believe have to be focus points for um, superintendents. One, you mentioned the green committee or, or, or you know, the, the boardroom. You've got to get that information to them so that they know. And that doesn't mean a week before you're going to go in and ask for your budget. You start in the spring. You start now. Let's take a ride on the golf course. I want to show all of you the things we're working on. I want you to see some of the projects that we have underway and keep taking them out and keep them engaged so that you're constantly communicating. So at such time you're, that you're saying, I need three more bodies. I need you to approve three more workers for my crew. They, they've seen it. They understand what you're dealing with, right? Right now, I'm only able to do these things because I don't have enough horsepower. When I get more workers, I'm going to come back to this spot and we're going to change this, this, and this and make it even better. Because then your decision makers can become your supporters. There's another important point of focus for a superintendent as far as communication, and that is into the accounting office. <laughs> it's very uncommon that a manager or a board is going to uh, approve additional expenses if the controller or the director of finance at a particular facility is shaking his head no. When someone says, I need three more bodies, and the, the controller is giving the signal, you know, the body language signal that says, this is a bad idea, we don't have this money, you're dead because you're not, it doesn't matter how great the pictures are, it doesn't matter how, how articulate your explanation is, you're dead. You've got to get the, the, the guys in the accounting department on your team. They need to understand what you're doing 
So that means you need to be communicating with them constantly. You need to be taking them out to the golf course. Let me show you what I'm trying to get done. Let me show you how I'm doing. Oh, and by the way, have I shown you that I'm not buying nearly as much fertilizer as I was because I have put together a, an on-demand fertilizer supply thing so I don't have a bunch of bags of fertilizer just sitting around collecting water. Uh, so I'm getting much more efficiency out of my procurement process. And, and I want to show you these other things so that you're constantly letting the folks in accounting know you're on top of your game and that you are every bit the professional that they need, need you to be. And then the last point of focus that um, I think superintendents miss or overlook or frankly are afraid of is the golfers themselves. You know, we, we have a tendency to look at golfers and say, okay, here they come. Now they're going to just start criticizing me. Now they're going to find fault with everything I've done. And it is a superintendent who is really polished, who can say, you know, I'm going to have a field day next Saturday afternoon. When you finish your golf, join me. We'll take a walk out on the golf course and I'll, I'll educate you a little bit on what we're trying to do. And, you know, we, we all love these trees and we, we sure don't ever want to see one go. And yet, look, I'm not able to grow grass on the back of this green because of the shade factor from this tree. Um, I've talked to the USGA folks. I've talked to other turf science experts. We're going to need to find a way to get sunshine down into this turf. And at that point, when I'm standing out there with the superintendent, whom I feel now is my friend and is trying to truly trying to make the golf course better for me, then all of a sudden, I think that's something we're going to have to do. We may not take the tree out, but I'm, I'm gung-ho on thinning it out so we can get some sunshine through there. And then one step leads to another. The, the power of information is the power that a superintendent has not yet harnessed. And that's something I want to do. So if, if you're encouraging superintendents through Golf Course Industry Magazine, which I think is one of the great ones for, for this very task, it is encouraging golf course superintendents to do a more effective job of proactive and a consistent job of communicating. These are our standards and these are the things we're trying to accomplish. Um, some golf course superintendents may recall, I often like to write about developing an agronomic standards book so that the superintendent is articulating, these are the standards to which I intend to keep this golf course. These are the things that we've all agreed we want and need to do. Because once we've agreed on what, we, what it is we want and need to do, then my job as a professional in the, in the field of turf science is to come back and say, here's how we're going to do that and here's what it will cost. And once I can get everyone to buy into the standards, then it's a lot easier for me to make the argument for, I'm just delivering you what you told me you wanted. These are, this is what it takes to get the job done at the level that you told me you want. So uh, superintendents need to flip the relationship around kind of like judo or jujitsu, where instead of just taking the blows, you start thinking this, this attacker is going to attack me in a certain way. I'm going to flip them over my back and turn this to my advantage and the way to do that communication in a proactive and organized manner. So much of what you just talked about boils down to communication and, and, and everything really boils down to just being a human being, just being a functioning human being, talking with others. And, and that ties into culture. Uh, so much of your second and third installments were about culture. Second, you, you turned to three business leaders for some straightforward tips. Jim Collins, who if people know him, they probably know him as the author of Good to Great. And he always preached getting the right people on the bus, getting the right people in the door. Jeff Bezos, who needs no introduction, richest man in the world, Amazon founder. 
had three tips that you turned to, which was he wants to work with people he admires, wants to work with people who raise the effectiveness of their groups, wants to work with people who he thinks can be superstars. And then Regina Hartley, who is a longtime <laughs> UPS leader, loves the scrappers, loves the people with the non-traditional backgrounds. Yep. Um, when you're hiring, and obviously a little different, but you run a very successful company, what are you looking for when you're interviewing or when you're hiring or when you are consulting with people who are doing the same things? Um, when we at GGA Partners are hiring people, we're looking for people who have a vision for themselves in the long term. Uh, we're, we're not looking for someone who simply is looking for a job. Uh, we, we, we want someone who has a vision for who they are and who they want to be. And, you know, in the past, we always heard all those questions. What, what do you want you know, five years from now? And, you know, somebody somewhere told someone, tell, tell them, I want your job in five years. And it starts to become something of a cliche. You know, you feel like you're watching a, the same movie loop over and over. Um, but what we're looking for is always a scrapper. We're always looking for attitude over abilities. Uh, we'll teach people what needs to be done. And, and, you know, think about it. If you're a golf course superintendent, you're going to teach your crew what you want to have done and how you want it done. What you're looking for is someone who's going to take that and say, I, I, and go do it. And, and that's, that's a real, that's the magic. So finding people who will be a part of a team uh, are, are the people you're looking for. And that means you need to understand what their vision is for themselves. I believe that it, that most people that we're hiring these days want to be a part of a team and a winning team. No one wants to come in and have a job where the, <clears throat> where the maintenance compound is a mess, where there's trash laying all over the place, where you know, there are oil slicks in the middle of the, of the maintenance compound, all of those things that you see in some places and you say, man, I wouldn't want to work here. Why would anyone else want to work here? And so to me, it begins at the top of the organization with the superintendent and filters all the way down through. And once you have established certain standards, that the right kind of people, and especially those scrappers, will come to you. And, and, and I, of all the things in my work and in my career of which I'm proud, it is that we have such great success at hiring terrific people. I'm, I'm reminded of a, a story I was told by a guy at Morgan Stanley where they're bringing in all these hotshot MBAs and all these highly capable, remarkable people. And they have them do a lot of pre-employment testing and they give them a problem that is unsolvable. They give them a problem where there is no answer. There's no way to get to the answer. And um, what they're looking for is this proud, accomplished, you know, maybe arrogant, would-be employee who has to come back and say, I'm sorry, in the allotted time, I just couldn't find the solution. I tried this, I tried this, I tried this, uh, couldn't get to the solution. Because A, that's a person who's truthful. B, that's a person who's going to stick to it and, and battle through a difficult situation. And Lord only knows there are plenty of them. And, and the third point is that I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be a part of this team if you let me. And I'll take on the toughest tasks. I'm not afraid of them. And uh, th that's, you know, hit, my friend said, that's the person we're trying to hire. Smart people are a dime a dozen. We can find plenty of them. 
We want the person who brings certain qualities, you know, like stick to itiveness and persistence and determination. Those are things that are harder to measure, but the, you know, the smart guys that can find the solution very quickly are not necessarily the people we're looking for. You're reading my mind because that was literally the next question I was going to ask. It, it, it boils down to weeding out the jerks, for lack of a better term, but also just bringing in the people who, kind of like Bezos said, you know, people you'd want to work with, people who you think will raise your general level of effectiveness. Right. Right. One of the things that captured my attention in Bezos' three criteria was, is this a person who's going to inspire me? Mm-hmm. And, you know, sometimes leaders feel that we have the obligation to inspire others. And sometimes it's the guy at the bottom of the food chain that brings you inspiration. And one of my favorite anecdotes to that very point was goes clear back to the beginning of the space program in America when Kennedy, you know, announced we're going to put a man on the moon in this decade and return him safely to Earth. And, you know, America took took the charge and 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 we got into the space business and subsequently Kennedy was walking through the space center down in Houston came around a corner and happened upon the janitor who was there mopping the floor and Kennedy my how times have changed right uh, Kennedy uh, you know was amused that this guy doesn't seem real impressed that um, the president is here and so he approached the janitor, introduced himself, I'm John Kennedy, what's your name? The janitor said his name and he said, what's your, what are you doing here? And the janitor said, well, Mr. Kennedy, I'm part of the team that's gonna put a man on the moon. Wouldn't you like that guy to be working for you? Don't you wish that your team had such a clear understanding of what your vision is that they bought into it and understood that I'm just, just mopping the floor which is probably the way I would have answered the president's question. But to have a team that understands every little thing we do results in us putting a man on the moon. And you're part of that. Because what employee doesn't want to be a part of winning? What employee doesn't want to be a part of doing those small things that get you the success that, that you need? For me, that's the inspiration and being, being a superintendent who can pass along that I know I'm just asking you to go out along the fence line and pick up all the garbage and pull the plastic bags out of it. And, and it doesn't seem very important, but every little job adds up to putting a man on the moon. And that's what we're trying to accomplish. The more a superintendent can reinforce what he or she is trying to accomplish, the more your team members can buy into it and, and take ownership of it. One common mission statement, one common goal. Everybody has, like you just said, everybody has their own little tasks, whether it's mopping the floor, cleaning up things along the edges or raking bunkers, but it's all with one big goal in mind, obviously. Yep, exactly. The last of the four, well, the last for now, I don't know what, what the June column is going to bring. It may, might be another staffing for success column, but the, the most recent staffing for success column, which will be online a little later this week with the rest of the May issue, you read and review the book Leading with Gratitude, Eight Leadership Practices for Extraordinary Business Results by Adrian Gostick and Chester Elton. And if people take one thing away from your column, and if they read the book and they take one thing away, it's thank you. And, and I even told you in an email yesterday, because we were trading emails trying to get this scheduled, I think I'm much more aware, and maybe even just saying it more, I'm much more aware of when I say thank you, and I think I'm saying thank you, 
more often. And I tend to say it a lot, but even just since reading your column, I feel like it's that much more. Very simple way just to show gratitude and just to get everybody on your side, working toward that one common goal. Just say thank you. Gratitude is a powerful, powerful force. And sometimes we have it. You know, you, you don't see many golf course superintendents who are confused about what gratitude means. I think many superintendents feel that they don't receive enough of that gratitude. But at the same time, if you're going to really tap into the power uh, and capabilities of the people around you, you demonstrate gratitude. And, and so my hope is that uh, from that column, readers of GCI take away the notion of, yeah, I, I need to do a better job of that. One of the big takeaways for me, if there's a silver lining in this t terrible coronavirus pandemic, it is reminding me that I have so much to, for which to be grateful. More than a half a million Americans who are not with us anymore as a result of this. We need to be thankful. And by the way, we need to be thankful for this pandemic. We need to be thankful for everything that comes to us because in, in, in that thankfulness, there is learning, there's humility, there's growth, there's opportunity. And so gratitude is the powerful force. And of course, gratitude begins in a place of being alert and aware and able to monitor the things that are happening around you. Hard to be grateful when you're not paying attention. And I was just opening up the February issue. What you just said kind of circles back to the very start of this series, which whether he said it or not, as you pointed out, Winston Churchill never let a good crisis go to waste. I don't know if any, many people would describe the coronavirus and COVID-19 as a good crisis, but a crisis nonetheless. So not letting it go to waste, uh, the point remains. Well, and I think Churchill's point was, it's a crisis unless you do something constructive with it. That's what makes it a good crisis, I suppose. But for me, that one and the other one that I, that I always tap into from Churchill was his famous statement during the worst of the bombing of London, the Blitz. And he, and he said, you know, when you're going through hell, keep going. So, uh, you know, don't, don't stop, don't wait, keep, keep going. And I think that's one thing that golf course superintendents understand very well. We all in our careers have times when it's just tough, when the weather's against us, where the circumstances are against us. Maybe there are people who are making our, our jobs uh, less enjoyable and, and you just got to keep going. And sometimes um, we can be grateful for that. Those people who made our uh, jobs unenjoyable probably taught us something. If nothing else, they taught us to be thankful for the, when the job is great and when our careers are great and when we, the, the work that we do is meaningful to us. That's the great reward in my books. And whether you're being grateful or saying thank you, leave folks, leave listeners with this one little nugget, and you pointed this out in your most recent column, Gostick and Elton, Adrian Gostick, Chester Elton, authors of Leading with Gratitude, found that 81%, this is remarkable, 81% of workers said they would work harder if their boss were more grateful for their work. And the number one reason people leave a job, and this is from the Department of Labor, they don't feel appreciated by their managers. Just be grateful, say thank you. Seems very simple. Well, it's, it is. It's so important. I was at a club out in California uh, early last year. And I was with the, the club manager at the time who said, hey, come with me. I, I need to go do this employee of the month thing. And everyone would remember when Will Ferrell played the part of Ron Burgundy in, in the Anchorman movie. 
people know me. I'm kind of a big deal. We went that at that particular club, the employee of the month award is called the Ron Burgundy award. And the entire ceremony is that the employee who's being honored is identified among peers and friends, uh, called forward, given a, you know, modest check of some kind. And there's a photograph made of the manager, the employee and the employer, the employee's supervisor and, and Ron Burgundy in, in a cutout. And um, as the, it was a line cook in the kitchen whose name was called and his friends were all throwing him some high fives and fist bumps and, and hey, Chewy, yeah, man. And, and it was such a fun moment. In, and in that moment, the cook began to weep. And when he kind of collected himself and everybody's now trying to figure out what's going on, he said, I told my sons I wanted to win this award because to earn the respect of your coworkers is everything. And I, I thought, wow, I'm at this cheesy award thing and what a wonderful lesson I just learned from this line cook. Um, I got to remember that to earn the respect of your coworkers is everything. And um, there's gratitude in action for you. So uh, for me, as, as we kind of have this conversation, that was a, a story that I felt every superintendent, every golf course worker can connect to because it certainly connected for me. Well, Henry Delosier, our game plan columnist, four straight great columns, the, C the Staffing for Success series. I don't know what is in store for June, but I, I look forward to your column every month. I always learn something. Thank you so much for coming on Beyond the Page again. Before I let you go, anything you want to plug or promote, anything we didn't talk about uh, that you want to bring up? No, I'd only ask that golf course superintendents take good care of themselves and their families. Hold those loved ones dear. Uh, that's another one of the great things we've learned from this pandemic. So I appreciate the chance to participate, Matt. You always make these interviews so fun. So thanks for including me. My thanks again to Henry DeLosier and Marissa Marr for taking some time to go beyond the page. And my thanks to all of you for listening to all the podcasts on the Superintendent Radio Network. New episodes of Beyond the Page, Greens with Envy, Off the Course, and the OG Tartan Talks right here every Tuesday. Our May issue will be online later this week with Henry DeLosier's latest Staffing for Success column, my story about the Olympic Club and its prep for the U.S. Women's Open, and so much more. Check it out at www.golfcourseindustry.com magazine. You can also sign up for a physical subscription if you don't have one already. Those issues will be in your mailbox a little later this month. You can read more industry news and notes in our Fast and Firm newsletter delivered every Tuesday to your inbox. Sign up online on our homepage, www.golfcourseindustry.com, under the subscribe tab. Golf Course Industry is produced by Guy Cipriano and me, Matt Lowell. Our columnists are incredible. Terry Buchan, Henry DeLosier, who will teach you something new every time you talk with him, Bradley S. Klein, Tim Morrigan, and Matthew Warden. We have some fantastic regular contributors, too. Tyler Bloom, Trent Bouts, Lee Carr, Ron Furlong, Judd Spicer, John Torciello, Anthony Williams, and Rick Wolfel. Our publisher is Dave Zai. Our sales stars are Russ Warner and Andrew Hatfield. Jim Blaney designs the magazine. Lori Scala makes sure everything goes where it should. Avril Braden and Christina Warner make sure you all receive the magazine. I think... 
Christina and Russ are pretty happy with who the Browns drafted. I haven't talked to them about it yet. Kelly Antle makes sure we all get paid. Michaela Dodrell handles advertising and production. Irene Sweeney does more than anybody can keep straight. Anna Kolar, Cody Menick, Tom Bauman, and Patrick Briand make up our IT team. Nick Adams, A.G. Alexander Garrett, Clark Quick, Jay Boyden, and Kevin Caslow are our online and video experts. Thomas Vidmar handles our classifieds. Our president is Chris Foster. Spring is in the air. His bees, I think, are healthy. Above all else, we couldn't do what we do without you. Thanks so much for listening.